Okay, добрый день. Good morning, everyone. Um, how many of you are familiar with Soviet or post-Soviet Russian higher education? Quite a few, yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, the idea of my presentation is to set the scene and provide you background information and historical context um, of how the Russian higher education system developed, and which I hope would be a good background for the subsequent presentations uh, 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 later today. So what I will talk about, first of all, I will briefly sketch out, I will briefly sketch out the key features of Soviet higher education. Then I'll talk about the uh, Soviet higher education reform under perestroika. The, the mouse is very sensitive. So. <laughs> um, uh, and um, uh, talk about Russian higher education between 1991 and the year of 2000. And at the end, I will briefly highlight some of the major structural changes and reforms which have happened since the year of 2000. And I'm sure my colleagues then will pick up on these reforms beyond the year of 2000 in more detail in their own presentations, yeah? So the first question, I would like to ask you a question. So what do you think was the main mission or aim of Soviet higher education? <laughs> well, I, I, I believe it was uh, education of a Soviet-oriented man or man and woman. Yes. Like a, a good Soviet person. Uh, yeah, <laughs> creating a new Soviet type of uh, person. Yeah. 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 Not, uh, she knew that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and anything else? Exactly, yeah. So the, the, the aim and mission of Soviet higher education institutions were mainly twofold. The first one is training the manpower for the centrally planned economy, and secondly, creating a new Soviet man or Soviet person, yeah. And um, the idea that higher education could be acquired for its own sake or that it is a means for personal development was not really, was very little mentioned in the official Soviet discourse. And obviously as a result, the whole Soviet higher education system was developed in such a way in order to support the existing regime. Yeah? We all know that the Soviet Union consisted of 15 Union republics and there were three key features in this uh, uh, system. And I would like to talk briefly about each of them. So the first one was centralized administration and control. So even though um, this, uh, the administration and control of higher education was centralized, in reality it was quite complex and uncertain. So the overall control of the system was provided by the Soviet Union Ministry of Higher Education. But actually, it exercised its control through a large network of subnational ministries of higher education in each of these 15 republics. 
And at first sight, this administration and control could be considered to be decentralized, but in reality, they were extensions of the Soviet Union Ministry of Higher Education because all the officials in subnational ministries were nominated, approved, dismissed by the, by the, by the old Union Ministry of Higher Education. Um, also, another feature in terms of administration and control was that the U Soviet Union Ministry of Higher Education was responsible for all the universities in the Soviet Union, as well as a number of specialized institutes, sort of similar to polytechnics that we had in this country. Uh, 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 but um, the, the, the control was also exercised by tw more than 20 individual ministries, and they, uh, they controlled particularly the majority of uh, specialized institutes. So the system uh, expanded because of that. And uh, why this dualism was, was, uh, of control was there is because there was uh, another feature in Soviet higher education, so-called centralized assignment of graduates. So the manpower was planned centrally by each ministry, by each individual ministry, and uh, um, they had the responsibility for the manpower development and training as well. Obviously, this created a lot of confusion um, because apart from the Union Ministry of Higher Education, there were 21 individual ministries responsible for the higher education. There was a lot of duplication and overlapping of responsibilities, increased bureaucracy and, and, and great inefficiency as well. Yeah? So, and the, obviously the Communist Party played a great role and each university, each polytechnic, had a primary uh, Communist Party committee, which were extensions of the central Communist Party bureaucracy. And their role was quite influential in the Soviet times. At the institutional level, all the rectors were appointed by the Union Ministry of Higher Education. Uh, deans of faculties, heads of departments were elected by the rector and the academic council, but usually on an alternative basis. And they, also, they were also subject to the Soviet Union ministerial approval. Yeah. So, um, the next... Um, uh, the next feature <coughs> is unitary state funding. So there was only one source of funding, which was the central <coughs> state budget. So educa higher education was free, but only about 20% of school leavers went to the university. So the system was quite, uh, uh, was quite elitist. However, by between sort of mid-20th century and the start of perestroika in 1985, the higher education funding uh, um, was decreasing year by year, mainly because the higher education system was funded on the residual principle or residual basis, a strategy principle, where the universities and polytechnics would get their funding only after the needs of the defense military uh, uh, had been met. Yeah? And by 1985, the funding which was provided was not really enough to maintain even the basic assets, like physical plants, uh, the, the, there was a physical deter deterioration of infrastructure, and infrastructure was becoming quite obsolete. 
So the third main feature is standardized and uniform training and curriculum across the entire country. All curricula have to be approved by the Union Minister of Higher Education. So normally the period of study for students would be five years, five, six years, depending on the specialism. Uh, and all the curricula were exactly the same across the entire country in terms of the topics to be covered, in terms of the assessment regimes, etc., uh, 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 um, etc. Et okay? So that was the standardized and uniform training and, and, and curriculum. And this, I forgot to say, and the central element of any curricula in any specialism, but particularly in the humanities and social sciences, was the, um, uh, was the ideological discipline. Yeah. So probably a great bulk of curriculum was taken by the ideological causes, such as the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, principles of Marxism and Leninism, scientific communism, etc. etc. And the workload of students in the Soviet times was very heavy. Normally it was about 30 uh, classroom hours, and students had to go through 70 and 80 uh, uh, 70 to 80 examinations through their, through their studies, which were mainly in the form of face-to-face -face oral examinations. And obviously the system didn't encourage creative thinking. The whole system was about acquisition of knowledge and facts rather than the application of this knowledge. Yeah? So, obviously, uh, uh, um, then we get to 1985, we all know Mikhail Gorbachev, who started um, a, 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 a reform process from above, because not by 1985 it was clear that the, there was a huge economic slowdown, there was a deepening stagnation, and Gorbachev introduced a new vocabulary to the lives of the Soviet people. We all know about perestroika, openness, um, uh, acceleration, uh, what else was there? <laughs> Democratization, and so on and so forth. Yeah? And, and uh, 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 the main driving force, as I said, was economic decline as well as deepening stagnation. Uh, deepening, st deepening stagnation. Um, so, and higher education was one of the uh, pillars of this reform initiated by Gorbachev, but we need to remember that this reform was initiated from above. Yeah? And even though it can be seen as liberal, but at the same time it was quite evolutionary as well, because Gorbachev didn't envisage a break um, from the Soviet ideology. He still emphasized the strengthening role of the Communist Party, Marxism-Leninism, etc. So it was kind of a combination of both liberal as well as evolutionary uh, 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 reforms. And higher education was one of the central um, <coughs> areas of his reform. So what he proposed, or what the uh, uh, the Communist Party in the 19, in the middle of 1980s proposed, in terms of high reform agenda under Perestroika, so the first one was improving governance and administration at the central level. The idea behind this policy was that the control over higher education should be placed at the hands of a single ministry, which is Ministry of 
higher education and this control should be taken away from the individual ministries, 21 ministries, who also had the responsibility for the polytechnic and narrow, narrowly specialized institutions. However, this policy didn't work out, it never materialized because the branch ministries or the, the individual ministries, they were very powerful and they were really against losing control over their specialized institutes. Okay? So uh, it never happened because of the resistance. So the second um, uh, uh, item in the reform agenda under Gorbachev was enhancing the right of higher education institutions in personnel policy, academic and research methods. So the, 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 the Central Committee of the CPUS of the Communist Party, as well as the Ministry, was saying that the red tape should be reduced. There should be less directive sent to the individual uh, republics as well as the higher education institutions. But at the same time, the policy also emphasized the strengthening, uh, strengthening of the role of the Ministry of Higher Education in manpower planning and overall higher education planning. So, again, this policy um, uh, uh, never took hold in a way. But one notable change happened at this time because for the first time institutions had the right to democratically elect their rectors, deans of faculties, and heads of departments. But this change can be seen as, in a way, organic, because they always elected deans of faculty and heads of department, albeit on a non-alternative basis. But in a way, in, a personnel policy, in, in personnel policy, so this was one of the major reforms. But we also need to remember that the academic community itself was quite resistant to change because they were so used to bureaucratic control, so they were so used to directives sent from above that they didn't really have much intensive, uh, incentive uh, uh, to change as well. The next idea was introducing market-type elements in higher education industry relationships in the, way, uh, in the form of co-funding by the enterprises. So enterprises were to bid for higher education graduates and partially reimburse the cost of, um, uh, of uh, their education. Or they could sponsor a student for the duration of his or her study. But in return, higher education institutions were to provide tailor-made curricula to these uh, students. This policy was a disaster because enterprises um, they were not very keen on, on, on reimbursing the cost of education. They didn't want to sponsor students, etc. Because there was, at the time, if we look at the political context, there was a move to the market economy. And enterprises themselves were starting to experience severe financial shortages. Yeah. At the same time, institutions couldn't provide tailor-made program to the students sponsored by enterprises because the system was very rigid and not very open to this kind of uh, fundamental change in the, uh, uh, in the higher education workings. Okay. The next point in the agenda was increasing vocationalism and improving the ways of teaching Marxist-Leninist ideological disciplines. Um, so, 
educational centers were to be established in enterprises so that to enforce the higher education and industry relationships and so that, so that students could spend some time in the workplace as part of their curriculum. Nominally, quite many educational centers were established in, in enterprises, but neither enterprises nor universities were very keen or, 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 or very interested in, in, in real cooperation because Academics had very high teaching loads. There was a lot of other, there were a lot of other things happening in the wider society, and in a way, these educational centers for enterprises no longer were a priority. Yeah. And finally, uh, under this reform as well, um, uh, this was quite a new idea as well that all institutions were to be subject of assurance and accreditation procedures and that all academics should be evaluated. However, so this policy was strongly resisted by academics and between, 19, between June 1986 and September 1987 only 2% of academics had some form of internal institutional evaluation. And there is no any data. At the, um, there is no any data as to how many institutions were evaluated and accredited. But um, there is some evidence that some institutions were closed down or amalgamated, etc. So, so these were the main reform um, uh, uh, points for under under Gorbachev's leadership. And all those central authorities can be argued not to have given enough time or sufficient time for the 1987 reform to bring about tangible results. Its outcome, the outcomes of this reform agenda was officially recognized to be a failure. And one of the secretaries of the Communist Party um, said the following in 1988. Up to this moment, progress has been limited to changes of small importance. There is a discernible gap between the present state of higher education and the atmosphere of dynamism that is increasingly enveloping the country. The people sense this and are sounding the alarm. The population has become convinced that higher education reform is bogged down in numerous problems. So this judgment perhaps indicates the naive belief that reforms could be achieved quickly and with little effort. However, there were revolutionary changes were happening in the wider political and social life in the Soviet Union, and this brought about, in a way, a radical change in the context of the, of, the, of the Soviet regime. In 1988, all Union Congress of Educationalists, Educationalists was convened in Moscow. And this is quite a fundamental uh, uh, event because for the first time, the issues and problems of higher education were discussed openly within the and by the academic community which was never the case before, okay? And even though half of the attendees or participants of this Congress were against the radical change, 
So this Congress um, developed some sort of general principles of um, where higher education, how the higher education reform should develop further. So there were five um, principles under this. Student-centered education, democratization, decentralization, emphasis on the humanities, and de-ideologization. It is very difficult now to assess the impact of these policies on the entire higher education system, but actually, so these principles also brought about very little change. And probably the ideologization or removing ideological subjects from the university curricula is quite illustrative that the institutions were still continuing to work in traditional ways. Um, departments of Marxism and Leninism, departments of history of Communist Party were simply renamed departments of modern history or departments of political science, but they were still de delivering the same ideological content that had been delivered before. But what is interesting about this change that now academics could openly criticize the Soviet policy without fear of being sanctioned. And at this time as well, non-formal organizations and groups emerged as strong vocal voices in developing the higher education agenda. So at this time we had... Um, the informal, the informal association of higher education teachers, which emerged at this time. So there was an association of engineering institutes at, the at this time as well. The Council of Rectors became much more vocal, as well as, um, at this time as well, um, uh, as the first Soviet parliament was democratically elected, and the academic members of parliament also formed uh, a coalition, not a fraction, to lobby for the interests of higher education. So the main outcome is that now we had informal groups and the problems of higher education were openly discussed. And there was a, really, there was a real realization as well that the higher education was in deeper crisis than initially thought. Okay. So uh, we, all, uh, we know that uh, Gorbachev's reforms um, ended in the collapse and split of the Soviet Union into 15 republics. And in 1990, uh, Russian Federation, so the map of Russian Federation, uh, Russian Federation declared it, its independence from the Soviet Union. A year later, Boris Yeltsin was elected um, the president of Russia by popular vote, and the Soviet Union disintegrated in December uh, 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 1991. Yeah? So but what we witnessed at this period between 1991 and 2000, the proliferation of various programs, of various government programs, which were not actually ratified by the Russian parliament. And all these programs were in a way in contradiction with each other because some programs were more radical, others were more traditional. Even within the Russian Ministry of Education, so they would produce 
two different versions of the program where one would be more radical the other one or liberal and the other one would be more traditional or preserving the key features of the soviet higher education but what's really significant here that uh, in 1992 the law on education was enacted and i would argue that this law actually helped to, pre to preserve the russian higher education system because russian russia also consists of ethnically defined republics there are 21 ethnically defined republics each with its own culture language, lit, uh, etc., customs, uh, and so on and so forth. And at the beginning, there was also some centrifugal forces uh, in play because these ethnically defined republics wanted to have more autonomy. Of course, they didn't want to completely separate from Russia, but maybe Chechnya and Tatarstan did, but the majority of them didn't want to become independent of the Russian Federation, but they really wanted more autonomy in their political and economic lives. Yeah? And I would argue that in this very ambiguous center-periphery relationships context, the 1992 law on education and later the 1996 law on higher education helped to preserve the Russian system of higher education in more or less coherent way. Yeah? Um, uh, by 1993, because one of the things as well, because by 1993, 73 out of 89 regions of Russia developed their own higher education programs or also enacted their own regional laws on education. Okay. Um, how am I, um, I am for time. 15 okay. So, what was happening at the time? The Russian system did not, not only the Russian system survived in this very turbulent period, but it also expanded significantly. So, in 1991, for example, there were 519 higher education institutions, state funded higher education institutions, with about 3 million students. By 2000, there were 607 higher education institutions with more than 4 million students in state, in, in, in state system of higher education. This time also, this period also witnessed the, in, the, uh, the, 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 the development of private higher education. In 1991, there was no any private higher education because it was not allowed. By 2000, there were three, about 360 hybrid, private higher education institutions with about um, 500,000 students. Okay. I would emphasize that this number doesn't actually include branches because at this time, in order to survive financial and economic crisis, a lot of state universities started opening so-called so semi-private institutions like so-called branches across the different regions of Russia in order to survive the financial austerity. Yeah? But the number of public state higher of, of public higher education institutions increased mainly because uh, because because of upgrading further education colleges into the status of institutes for example, renaming institutes into universities and so on. 
So not only the Russian higher education survived, but also expanded. But I would argue that this was not a deliberate government policy. So this was actually a result of universities and institu institutes uh, 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 trying to survive. Okay. So, in terms of finance, in all the policy documents, as well as the legislation on education and higher education, the federal government promised to allocate no less than 3% of the federal budget on higher education in the form of block grants. And this was very new as well, because block grants never existed before. But in reality, throughout the 1990s, only 2% was allocated. And it was allocated not uh, in the form of block grant, but, item, but itemized budget, line by line itemized budget. And only protected budget items could be guaranteed. And protected budget items were st student stipends and academic salaries. But even here, only 70% of the protected budget items were paid and were not paid, often were not paid on time or were paid very late. The result of this obviously is a huge brain drain of academics from the edu higher education system. In the early 1990s, probably about 80,000 academics left academia. Uh, also, those who stayed started working in a number of different institutions, including private institutions as well, moonlighting, and so on and so forth. Yeah? And uh, uh, um, the 1992 law, and this was also confirmed by the 1996 law on higher education, public higher education institutions gained the right to admit paying students and generate income through entrepreneurial activities. And this is how they were able to expand their institutions, open branches, etc. In terms of academic matters, so what were um, uh, the changes or, or changing the degree structure? Uh, the 1992 law uh, stipulated that um, the, because normally the degree structure was five or six years and students would receive higher education diploma and specialist degree, yeah, specialist in a particular field. However, in the 1990s there were attempts to introduce a two-level system, bachelor's degree and master's degree. This was resisted by the academic community as well as institutions to a large extent because they believed that the Soviet higher education was the best in the world and if this system would be introduced then the traditions of Soviet higher education would be lost. So by the year of 2000 only a small number of institutions were offering master's or bachelor's degrees in a small number of programs and this policy actually resulted in a lot of confusion in the system because two the, the, the traditional system, degree system and the new system ran in parallel. And this created a lot of uh, confusion and uncertainty as well. In line with the Soviet curriculum development, the federal government also decided to introduce standardized curriculum or so-called the state standards for higher education. 
where 80% would be approved by the Ministry of Education and 20% of the curriculum would be the responsibility of the local um, authorities or institutions themselves in order to make their curriculum uh, in line with what, with what their local labor market would require. And these standards were quite prescriptive. They were input-based. They stipulated uh, um, uh, uh, what general requirements should be in terms, in terms of physical plant, academic resources, academic staffing, um, uh, etc. But also it, also, it also stipulated requirements for the minimum content in terms of what topics should be covered under each discipline, what the assessment patterns should be, etc. So we can see the continuation, in a way, of the Soviet uh, academic tradition uh, uh, at this period as well. Quality assurance procedures were introduced in the uh, introduced actually in 1996-97, but they became meaningful only when the government wanted to reduce the number of private higher education institutions, yeah, now private higher education institutions, and uh, stop the development of the opening of branches because there was a realization that a lot of these institutions operated like diplo as diploma mills, yeah, and the quality was questioned by, by, by the Russian public as well. So, uh, 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 and, and, and this procedure was introduced um, for that. But what we also witness at this period is the creation of a lot of new departments, new programs and courses, particularly in subjects such as economics, management studies, law, foreign languages, etc. Yeah? So, so that was the, to, uh, the 1990s, a very chaotic period and quite chaotic development in the uh, uh, higher education system as well. So on the one hand, we have a, uh, a reduction in funding. On the other hand, we have an expansion, private higher education, but also preservation of Soviet traditions. But then in the 2000s, when Putin became the president of, Ru of the Russian Federation, he started a top-down reform program. Now it was not called the reform of higher education, but all these initiatives were under the umbrella of so-called modernization of higher education. And we can see as well a proliferation of different programs, etc., etc. But probably what is quite significant here is so-called Project 5100 introduced by, uh, by the government, uh, a.k.a. Putin, in 2013. And this project, uh, project uh, 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 the, uh, the goal of this project is to have five Russian universities in top 100 in the world by 2020. Yeah. At the moment, there is not any Russian higher education uh, in the top 100. The best Russian institution, which is Moscow State University, is only in the low 200 of the best uh, uh, universities in the world. Yeah? And another idea behind this is, the, is that 10% of academic staff in Russian institutions should come from abroad, and 15% of students should come from foreign countries as well. So that's the idea. 
And what is happening? So it's quite a top-down uh, 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 agenda for modern modernization. Since 2000, since the year of 2000, because of the favorable oil prices, etc., the federal government increased its higher education fund. At the same time, there are now stricter uh, controls in terms of how universities and institutions use <coughs> their finances. For example, um, um, the, uh, the blog grants were never, were never materialized. Universities still receive their funding item by item, but also the federal treasury is infringing now in the university's autonomy in how they use their non-public uh, revenue, non-public money. Yeah? Secondly, in 2003, a new university admission procedure was introduced, introduced which combines both the school leave, um, the, the final school exams and the university entrance exams in like A-levels because previously all university exams were separate, mainly face-to-face -face oral examinations, etc. Joining the Bologna process in 2003, and this actually uh, um, um, gave impetus to the Russian higher education to actually take this two-level system of bachelor degree and master's degree more seriously, then now it's like a commonplace in Russian higher education. State standards that I've talked about a few minutes ago have also been revised. Now they're more outcome-based, and probably the skills and competencies uh, are, are, um, are present in the new state standards, but also the control of the federal authorities in determining the curriculum has been reduced as well. So now 50% for bachelor programs in terms of the curriculum content is decided by the institutions themselves, and 75% of curriculum is this for master's programs is also decided by the institutions themselves. More streamlined institutional assessment, and this resulted in closing down a lot of higher education institutions and merging higher education institutions as well. So the number of institutions has actually reduced considerably to about, I think, 800 something. Yeah. Also, another development that private institutions now have access to public funds as long as they want to offer state-approved degree, de degrees and they successfully go through the accreditation process, they can also bid for the public funding for higher education. Uh, 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 and at this time as well, probably as part of this 5100 pilot project, there is a greater differentiation between higher education institutions. There are now nine or ten, I think it's ten, federal universities which were created by merging a number of, a number of different institutions and they get preferential investment from the federal government. There are over 20 national research institutions as well, which are determined by on a competitive basis. There are also innovative, so there is a greater differentiation uh, uh, in, in the uh, among the institutions. One more minute, yeah? Yeah. yeah? Okay, so, but what are the challenges at the moment? Obviously, 
5100 project for continued investment into higher education is in danger at the moment, particularly because of the economic and financial crisis, because of the falling oil crisis, Western sanctions, uh, the ruble being devalued, political context, etc. So this might put in danger the government policy of having five institutions among 100 the best in the world, or attracting foreign academics as well as students. At the same time, maybe this uh, threat would give an opportunity to Russia to be less dependent on natural resources or commodities, and maybe develop a knowledge-based economy. Yeah. However, to develop this knowledge-based economy, I would argue financial investments are not enough. So there needs to be a, a, a fundamental change of culture. Particularly, many commentators still argue that Russia's academic system still is still informed by outdated Soviet thinking in terms of the courses, content, uh, etc. Okay. Another problem, lack of academic mobility, as well as academic inbreeding. Normally, people would graduate from the university, which, and they would get a job in that university where they are my mother, and they would stay there for the rest of their career. Yeah. So there is no academic mobility at all within the country. But also another problem maybe that the government or the Russian higher education should address is the non-transparency of academic recruitment and promotion procedures as well. So in order for the government and for the system to achieve its ambitious objectives, these uh, uh, processes should be seriously looked at as well. Another issue is enhancing productivity and competitiveness of Russian higher education. Uh, and one of the problems here, because obviously you cannot become one of the best universities in the world unless you publish in peer-reviewed journals. And one of the challenges here is obviously the language, but also that the reward system for people publishing in peer-reviewed journals is not part of the... It is not part of the culture. It's not part of the reward system as well. Of course, things are changing, but for this to become really part of the culture is quite uh, uh, problematic at the moment. Yeah? So therefore, a lot of academics publish in Russian journals. There are over 2,000 academic journals, journals in Russia, which are not, many of them, are, most of them are not peer-reviewed, and the quality of many of them, of them has been questioned as well. Yeah? So, and finally, what I would argue, so of course there are a lot of structural changes, but the system now needs to change its culture, and this <coughs> fundamental change of culture would require a really long time. Yeah? So, many thanks, I've been, I've, many thanks, I, thanks, I've been really quick.